Okay, if you'll take your Bibles out, please open them to the book of Hebrews and the seventh chapter. We return to our text. Hebrews chapter 7. And if you would join me in standing out of the reverence for reading of God's Word, as we come again to Hebrews 7, we'll begin once more at verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would give to us wisdom and understanding and grace. And we pray, God, that as we think on these things and think on the necessary change in the law and of the law, that you would grant to us wisdom. Father, as we carry the truth of Christ to a lost and dying world, and grant to us wisdom as we consider your law and how it applies to our lives. God, make us grateful for the change and the dramatic transformation that makes us yours. Make us grateful that you still speak to us. And make us grateful, God, that you no longer require us to stand according to our own righteousness. For in that, there was no hope at all. We ask that Christ be exalted, and we pray, God, for wisdom as we approach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. When God made man, he made him walk in perfect fellowship with his creator. When man fell, that unity and love, the relational fellowship that was our purpose, also broke. And God, therefore, made a way for us to be returned to some sort of fellowship with him. He gave the law, the priesthood to administer that law, and under the law stands that priesthood. The law both establishes the priesthood and guides the priesthood, and the two are inextricably connected by both purpose and origin. But the priesthood also upholds the law and helps to fulfill its purpose. Thus, it's impossible to change one without changing the other. By the establishment of Christ in a different order of the priesthood, God also necessarily changes the law that guides and establishes it. So I want to go and think with you about the contrast in this transformation of the law. Because as we move forward, remember what the writer of Hebrews has been laboring to do for the entirety of the book. Um, and, and it's easy to lose sight of the big picture because I'm a, I'm a kind of slow, weedy sort of preacher. I get lost in the weeds a lot. Um, but we, um, we need to remember that what the writer of Hebrews is laboring to do is to demonstrate that the gospel is superior to the law in every way. And so as he's approaching the new priesthood that Christ has given and the order of Melchizedek and all of those things that are connected, we need to understand that with the priesthood being transformed, the law that changed it, or the law that guided it, is also transformed. It's changed. The Old Testament law cannot hold power under a New Testament priesthood. They don't work together. They never have worked together. They will never work together. There can be no blending of Old Testament law and the New Testament priesthood of Christ. And so anybody who tries to, to have both must end up choosing in the end one or the other. If you're going to try and be saved by the law, 
then you must try to be saved by the law in its entirety, completely, without any other course or hope. In other words, you will stand before God according to your own righteousness and according to your own faithfulness in adhering to the Old Testament laws, to the Old Testament festivals, to the Old Testament feasts and the Old Testament laws and rules and all those things, and you will say to God, judge me by my righteousness. I have kept your law, and I am okay with that. Never, never, never. For none of us will ever keep any of it good enough. So if we're going to stand on grace, then we need to recognize that the law has no part in grace. It has a place as a precursor to grace, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But it has no part in grace. The law has been satisfied and set aside. So let's talk about what this means, because the law ultimately upholds the standard of God's requirement. It sets the bar of our obedience in accordance with God's own righteousness. It says, this is God's law, this is how God is, and if you want to approach him according to your righteousness, here's the standard. It's not judged according to how good you are compared to other people. That one's easier. I won't go so far as to say it's easy, but it's easier. If I'm allowed to choose who I'm to be compared to, I can do okay. But if I have to be judged against the best of you, well, I'm in trouble either way. So I don't want any part of that deal. I don't want to be judged according to my righteousness. But the law says this is the standard. It's not flexible. It, It doesn't negotiate. The law says here is the truth. Here is the standard. Here is the way. This is the expectation. And either keep it or fail and die. Period. That's all there was. It demands absolute Perfection. There can be no wavering in obedience of, to the law by those who are saved by the law. The standard is absolute perfection. And there is no mercy in the law. There is no room in the law for mercy. Hebrews 12 or 10.28 says, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So if you have failed to keep it, failed to obey it, then you die without mercy, period. Two or three witnesses demonstrating your unrighteousness, and you're out. And your own life will provide the testimony of exactly how badly you failed. The gospel, however, provides the perfection that God requires in the person of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we all hear this all the time. Hopefully by now some of you have memorized it. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God says, I will take the absolute perfection of Jesus Christ who fulfilled my law and I will count it to the credit of all who are found in Jesus. So when I look at them, my law has been satisfied in Jesus and I extend to them the grace that has been purchased by his blood. I extend to them the forgiveness that he himself bought. The gospel requires only faith, which is itself the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what the gospel requires is what God gives. And it's never 
it should never be a dull, small thing to us to consider this. It's why we need to fight for the supremacy of God and the absolute sovereignty of God in our salvation as well. Because for us to try and take back any part of what he has done is to diminish the majesty of his salvation. It is God who has granted faith to us and God who says, I will call to life those that I am working with and I will call to life those that I am saving and I will give to them exactly what I require of them. And the picture I have used often, and I'll explain it again, is if I were to come to one of my children and I would say, hey, I need $100 from you if you're going to live here. And they say, Dad, I don't have any money. And I say, hang on a second. And I hand them a $100 bill. And I say, now hand me back the $100. And they hand me back the $100. And then I praise them extravagantly for giving me what I just asked them for. They would look at me like I'm nuts. But that's really how grace works. God gives us what he requires of us. And then, because he is good and loving and gracious and kind, he counts it as if it were ours and praises us for having what he just gave us. It's mind-boggling. But this is the difference between grace and the gospel. I mean, between the law and the gospel, sorry. (laughs) Wow, I need more sleep. This is the difference between the law and the gospel. The law says... I will require of you what you cannot give. And the gospel says, I will give to you what you do not possess. And God counts us as righteous because of his work and not ours. And any attempt to mix law in with the gospel, to to say, yes, we're saved by grace, but you also have to keep the law, is what probably three quarters of the New Testament was written to combat. If you just read the New Testament, you find Paul over and over and over and over again saying, who has bewitched you? Specifically to the Galatians, the entire book of Galatians is about this issue. There is no other issue in Galatians except this thing, this attempt to bring the law into the realm of the gospel and to say we have to have both. So we need to recognize the truth that there are people who profess Christ who try to make it a legalistic thing. And there are some who run back to the Old Testament law and they say we have to observe the feasts, we have to observe the Sabbaths, we have to observe the dietary restrictions. We have to do all these things in order to be caught in grace. And there are those who make a whole new set of laws that we must adhere to if we're going to be saved. And they look like this. You will wear these kinds of clothes. You will have this kind of haircut. You will not do this. You will not do that. You will abstain from this behavior or we will destroy you. And and there is no room for grace because we have established a new law by which you conform to our image and then we will accept you. Beloved, all of that is hogwash. It's garbage. The gospel is a declaration of the working of God to save a people that he has determined to save. And it is done regardless of any virtue or value in them. It is done because God has determined to do it. And it is a work of mercy and a work of great grace. And it is absolutely going to do what it's set out to do. At its heart, 
This whole question is about how a man might be righteous before God, how he might be justified before God. It is to give us instruction so that we would know how to have peace between us and a God with whom we have declared war against. Because make no mistake, the rebellion of sin is declaring war against God. It is saying to God, you have no right to rule my life. You have no right to judge me. You have no right to rule your creation. I am the one in charge, and I will lay siege to your dominion, and I will cast you down. That's what sin is. And you may do it on a large scale, or you may do it on a small scale, where you have your secret little things that you cling to and go, ha this is mine, and God has no dominion in this area. And you keep peeking on your little secret sin, and you think that you're okay. You say, well, you just told me that grace says, I don't care what you're like. That's true. Grace saves us anyway. But God still demands holiness from his children because grace makes us like Christ. So any place where you try to say, this is mine, I'm going to keep it, I'm not going to let God have control over it, is to declare war against God. This is why grace is an ongoing process in our life. It's an ongoing work. God is continually conforming us to the image of Christ. He is continually shaping us. He is continually making us better and holier and truer and more faithful. He is continually removing sin. He is continually causing us to walk in obedience. And he is continually chastising his children for their rebellions because he loves us. He is unwilling to let us remain in our sin if we belong to him. And some Christian or some person who calls himself a Christian is going to say, look, I've been sinning ever since I got saved and God's done nothing to me. And I'm going to say to them, you better be very, very afraid. Because if you are his, he will correct you. He may not correct you externally and and dramatically like blowing up your whole life so the whole world knows it. But he will continue to strike home what is true. And if you can sin without any consequence, either external or internal, there is a real problem with your soul. You need to understand that. So all of these things that we look at and say, well, this is why and this is what, they are more effect than cause. We tend to look at the situation backwards. We look at somebody who God has been working in their life, and their life looks drastically different from what it was before, and so we make the wrong conclusion that they cleaned up their life and then came to God. But that's not how this works. Justification is a work of God, and it's a work that the law could not actually fulfill. The law was established as a temporary means by which man was made acceptable in the sight of God. But it was a putting off. Because the law could never justify anyone. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Galatians 2.16 echoes this. It says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, why was this? Well, Romans 8, verses 3 and 4 give us some insight. It says that the law was weak through the flesh, but God did what he did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is because fundamentally, according to Hebrews 10.4, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. All they could do was cover it for a season. They could put it off, which is exactly what the law did for a season. It was God choosing to take all of our sin and push it forward to the time when he would pay for our sin in the death of Christ. He passed over sin, and he applied it to Jesus. It was given specifically to show us our need. Look with me at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Starting at verse 21. Is then the law against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. That's a good verse to tuck away and put into your pocket. The next time somebody tries to give you some sort of a hodgepodge blend of law and gospel and say you have to believe in Jesus but also obey the Old Testament law. You can whip out Galatians 3.25 and say, look, after grace has come, we're no longer under a tutor. The old things have passed away. We are no longer bound by the law. We have been set free. This is the truth of what God has done in Christ. Because what the law actually did was confined us under sin. It was a tutor to lead us to Christ, and it kept us as a guard. It kept us under guard, excuse me. But in the end, the law was impossible for us to keep. Our sin nature hated God so much and hated his will so profoundly that we could not in any way seek to obey it in any fashion that was significant. Oh, we could keep it on the surface. Right? I, I can do your little list. And if I, if I actually believed that you know, wearing the right clothes and having the right haircut and speaking with the thus and reading the right translation of the Bible was going to save me, I could do all of that, and I could do it better than any of you. I'm a really good pretender. But it's not going to change my heart. It's not going to transform me. It's not going to make me new. All it's going to do is make me self-satisfied. And it's going to make me self-deceived because I'm going to stand before God and he's going to judge my heart. You know, the part that was pretending. See, this entire idea that we can have the Old Testament way with a New Testament heart, this, this idea that says, yes, you've been saved by grace, but you also have to have the law. It's what Satan has been trying to do to the church since the New Testament. And we need to abandon it. We need to cut it loose. And we need to understand why we cut it loose. And we have cut it loose because we have been given a new priesthood. 
And we're going to go on as we walk through the rest of Hebrews and the case is being made that the reason why Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi is for this very reason. It's why God chose Judah as the tribe which would produce Messiah. Because Judah was never a priestly tribe. They had nothing to do with the law. In fact, Judah was a pretty despicable character in a lot of ways. And God chose his tribe to be the one that would produce Messiah, who would be a new priesthood, who would set aside the Old Testament law. The entirety of the system has changed. And we need to recognize this, and we need to understand this, and we need to recognize the freedom that is ours and the obligation to holiness. Because you have been set free from sin, but you have not been set free from the call to holiness. That makes sense? It's what God calls us to walk in. So the Old Testament law was something that we could not keep. Jeremiah 2.19 says this, Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. Now that, that language was spoken specifically to Judah as Jerusalem was about to be destroyed. But it applies to us. Anyone who says, I, I will keep God's law and I will love him well enough and he just better be happy with what I take. They need to understand that the fear of God is not in them. And they have departed from truth, and they have departed from righteousness, and they have departed from obedience. And what God calls us to do is to repent, to turn to him and to ask for mercy. Mercy at its core has no part in, look at what I deserve. Mercy at its core says, I don't deserve what I'm asking for. I need something beyond what I deserve. Mercy at its core cannot be earned, it cannot be bought, or it would not be mercy. And the gospel is about mercy. The gospel is about the grace of God extending mercy to us. We are declared to be justified, made fully righteous and completely acceptable in the sight of God by the blood of Jesus. Look at Romans chapter 3. We'll talk about this putting aside and this forgiveness which comes in Christ a little more in depth. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Well, let's read that again. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So they gave testimony of what God was doing, they witnessed to it, they prophesied of it for, for centuries, for millennia. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So it's not just the Jews who had the law, but also the Gentiles who were outside of the law and are now in the gospel of grace. It had nothing to do with the righteous behaviors of the people. It has everything to do with the righteousness of God imputed and imparted to them. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. God's demonstrating his own righteousness because in his forbearance, 
God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what this is telling us is that by the application of the blood of Christ to our sin, God himself has been justified for his forbearance in not destroying us for our sin. Because the law wasn't doing it. The law wasn't saving anyone. The law was not getting it done. It couldn't. All the law did was make us aware of our guilt. It made us aware of our sin. It made us aware of our hatred for God. Because every place where the law says, thou shalt not, that thing rises up in us which says, oh yes I will. Well, I've got a two-year-old, almost a three-year-old at home. He'll be three in just a couple of weeks. And I am seeing this in spades. Whatever we say to him, please do, he says no. Whatever we say don't do, he says I'm gonna. This is human nature at its core. This is what it is to be alive. We don't like being constrained. We don't like being told no. And the law tells us no, and every place where it tells us no, our flesh rises up and says, yes! And every place where the law says yes, our flesh rises up and says, I ain't doing that. So anybody who thinks that their righteousness is going to be adequate, that they're going to be able to keep the law successfully, doesn't understand what's really going on, because God's law could not save us, and it wasn't saving us, and it wasn't transforming us, and God chose not to destroy us, but instead to take all of our sin and all of our guilt and all of our unrighteousness and deposit it forward in time until such a time would be that Christ paid for it on Calvary. Amen. And all that time that God was doing this, not destroying us, looking over our sin, paying it ahead, putting it forward, putting it on deposit and allowing it to accrue interest. All of hell itself is crying out against him, God, you are unjust. You are unjust. Man should be destroyed. Because as Satan accuses the brethren, he also accuses God of unrighteousness. This is why Romans says that God vindicated his own righteousness. He established what I did was right. And here are the books open, and you can see every sin for every saint that has now been paid for in Christ. And you can see that the books have been cleared. All done. So tell me this. To what amount of all done can you add obedience to the law and think that you're being righteous? To what amount of all done can you add, I'm going to go back to the Old Testament way of doing things so that I'm just a little bit better and think that you're okay? You can't. It's impossible. In the end, when God says, I have paid it all and I have vindicated my righteousness, it's done. And therefore, there must be a new priesthood. There has to be a new law. There has to be a new way of doing things. We are no longer bound under the Levitical law. We are no longer bound under the feasts and the dietary restrictions and the observations. None of those things have anything to do with us because the blood of the Lamb has the power to take away the sin of the world. 
Hebrews 10 says the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. But when John saw Jesus coming over the hill to come be baptized, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God that what? That takes away the sin of the world. Even before Jesus had begun his ministry, it was prophetically uttered that there's the guy that is going to take away your sin. He's going to remove it. Because Jesus' blood could. The law never could. It was impossible for the law to save us because it was just not capable of doing it. Romans 5.9 says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath by our continued obedience to the law? No. We shall be saved from wrath through him. See, God transforms our nature and he transforms our very desires so that our very will itself longs to obey His commandments. You say, but you just, you've been telling us that the commandments don't matter. The Levitical commandments, the external ones about the feasts and the festivals and the dietary restrictions and the clothing. Look, if the clothing itself, if just that one thing was in, was in, in force, we would all be condemned. You can't buy 100% anything anymore. Try it. Go try and buy something that's just 100% cotton or 100% wool. They always got to put in some sort of synthetic. They always have to mix fibers. And that is an absolute no-no according to Scripture. So if you're going to keep the law, then keep it all. James says, for the person who keeps all the law but fails at one point, he's guilty of what? The whole thing. Right? But we like to cherry pick the easy parts. We like to cherry pick the fun parts. We like to cherry pick all of that stuff. But I don't see any of the men wearing the, the long curly dreadlocks on the front. I don't see the blue threads woven throughout your garments. I don't see the tassels. I don't, I don't see you wearing the phylacteries on your head and on your hands. Say, well, that's their exaggeration of the law. Not really. It was their obedience to the law, but it wasn't enough. We pick and choose. We, we cherry pick the parts that we like. But what the scripture tells us is that the Levitical law has been finished in Christ, set aside. You say, well, so what part of the law are you talking about? I'm talking about the righteous law of God, the Ten Commandments that tell us the nature of God himself. Those things never change. God still wants us to honor him above everything else. The first commandment is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The summary law is still in fact because it is the nature of God, but it's not going to save you by keeping it. It gives you a guide for what God calls you to walk in. It helps you understand his nature so that you might obey and, and, and live in a way that is pleasing to him. And it is the new nature that has been put in you that even makes you want that. Amen. Because before God changed your heart, you didn't want it. What you wanted was your own way. Now, interestingly enough, because of the perversion of our own natures and the perversion of our own spirits, sometimes there are parts of God's law that line up with our nature. It just seems fair and right to us. There are some people that are just as honest as the day is long, lost as a golf ball in tall weeds, but honest. 
They hate lying. They hate liars. Probably somewhere in their past they got lied to and it really hurt them and it changed them and they think, you know what? Telling the truth is right. And you look at that person and you say, there is a moral man. There is a man who can be trusted. There is a man who keeps his word. Does that mean that man is going to heaven? No. It just means that his natural bent happened to align itself with what God said and we look at the externals and go, yeah, good job. But that's not what saves us. Because I promise you, for every one thing that he agrees with God about, there are 10,000 that he doesn't. And he is just as faithful to disobey as he is to obey. Because the God that he's following is the God of his own desires. Now this gets really subtle and it gets really treacherous for us, which is why the entirety of the gospel is about grace and faith and the work of Christ. Because, extrapolate that with me just a minute. Let's think this through. What if there was somebody whose general nature, by their own bent and by their own desire, happened to align with all ten of the Ten Commandments? And they just always did what was right. Would they be righteous? No. They couldn't be. And here's why. Because what they're obeying is what they want. Which denies at its heart the first commandment. You understand? This is quicksand under us if we don't get this right. It undoes everything if we don't understand this at its core. We have to recognize the truth. That it is an adherence to the law of God because it is God's that can only be obtained by the mercy and the grace of God that changes our nature. Because at our core, original sin defines us in such a way that the only thing we want is our own will. That that changes everything. Which is why what God does at the beginning of salvation is to give us a new will. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new character. He gives us a whole new being. And when he calls us to life and gives us something new, the first cry of a newly living heart says, God, I am such a wretch. Please have mercy on me. Please have mercy. And that prayer sounds like a million different voices in a million different languages and a million different ways of phrasing it, but it all comes down to one idea. God, have mercy. And it is the response of a newly living heart to the sovereign work of a gracious God who just made them live. And we understand this. And we understand this only because God tells us because it doesn't make sense to us otherwise. You're not going to just dream this up. Why? Because, well, it makes more of God and less of you. So it's absolutely contrary to our basic nature. Our basic nature says, make less of God, more of me. Our basic nature says, I want to have a larger part in this. Our basic nature says, I want to have something to contribute. But God in his mercy says, no. I will, I shall, I have. And I will save those that I will save. And I will do it completely. 
And this is the work of the gospel in us when God justifies us. Now, this naturally has an effect. So what are the effects of the two systems? What effect does the law have? Let's start with that. Look at Romans chapter 7. You want a good explanation of the effect the law has? Paul lays it out pretty nicely. Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 7. What shall I say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known that covetousness was sin unless the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me so that through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. What I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. And if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I will what I will not to do, then it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So what's Paul say? He says, look, all the law does apart from grace is produces sin. It produces more sin and more sin and more sin because every single time God says don't, our flesh rises up, lays hold of that don't and says, I want that more than life itself. I'm telling you, spend time with a three-year-old. This is us at our core. This is everything that we are. When you strip away the pretenses and you strip away the conditioning and you strip away the training and you get down to the raw essence of humanity, we want our way. That's all there is. And so what the law does is provides opportunity for us to see just how desperately we need a Savior. It drives sin. It causes sin to rise up and to become stronger and stronger and stronger. So the law, taken on its own, apart from any application of grace, does not save. It cannot save. And the law must always bring us to grace and then leave. 
Because grace saves us and does not need the law to do it. Does that make sense? The law escorts us to Christ and then it departs. Because ultimately the law pronounces a curse. Deuteronomy 27.26 says, Cursed is the one who does not conform all the words of this law. And all the people shall say amen. Or Galatians 3.10, the New Testament expression of that says, For as many as are, under, are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You see, the law at its core passes judgment, and it executes the sentence of that judgment. Romans 3.23, we read earlier, says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us the consequence of that. It says the wages of sin is what? Death. That's all the law brings. Somebody says, well, the rest of Romans 6.23 says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And they're absolutely right. But the law is not about the gift. You understand? What's, what's the connective right there? What's the conjunction between the two halves of that statement? But. The, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Not together. You can't have an obedience to the law that's going to save you. Because the law only produces sin. So the gospel also has an effect, as it should. It does something to us. And ultimately, the gospel produces a desire to love and to obey God. Romans 7.25, we just read it. Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. With the flesh, the law of sin. That's true. But the law has been set aside and our nature has been transformed so that with our mind and our heart and our will, we long to serve God. That's a change. We want something different. We want to please God. We want to obey. We want to love God because the law also does something with that curse. The law pronounces the curse on us, the curse of our disobedience, but what does the gospel do with the curse? Anybody know? Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So in the law, we want only what we want. In the gospel, we want to serve God. Under the law, we're with a curse. Under the gospel, the curse falls on Christ. What was the third effect of the law? You remember? It passes judgment and it executes sentence, right? Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. Does the gospel pass judgment and execute sentence? Absolutely it does. But it falls on Christ. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Jesus drank our portion of hell. He consumed the wrath of God that was due our sin. And he did so in such a complete and absolute fashion that there remains no wrath for. 
us. Here's a common thread. When you find people that are going to try and mix the law and the gospel and say you're going to be saved by grace, but you also have to do this, what's the, what's the whip that drives the law portion? If you don't do it, God's going to be angry with you. If you don't do it, you're not going to receive his blessing. If you don't do it, you're not going to fulfill what he called you to do, and you're going to be sorry for not doing it, right? That's all the curse. That's all the judgment. That's all the consequence that comes from disobedience to the law. But all of that judgment and all of that consequence has already been satisfied in Christ. God caused all of that to fall on him. So there is none left for us unless God himself is unjust. Is God unjust? No. You see, Christ consumed all of the wrath of God. And in doing so, he gave to us freedom. Now, let's deal with the elephant in the room. Why then, preacher man, do you not take out the first 39 books of your Bible, rip them out, and throw them away? Because some people would. Does the Old Testament, does the law have a place in the life of believers? Absolutely it does. But it's a transformation. It's a transformed law. It is a law that is completed, which has now been given the fullness of what it was intended to be. It was a tutor to bring us to Christ. And as such, it still has a purpose in our lives. For Christ said that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, to accomplish its purpose. So the very first thing that we need to understand is that the law still has place in our lives. It changes us. It instructs us. It gives us understanding. It transforms us. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So the first application of the law comes back to the person who is still under it. And when the law of God is proclaimed unto them, what happens? They see their sin, they see their need, their heart is made to live, and they cry for mercy. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Look, nobody's going to get saved by puppets. Okay? You're not going to get saved by bringing donkeys into the sanctuary and having a giant party and a parade. You're not going to save people with balloons. You're not going to save people by having the right kind of music or the right kind of preacher or having the right kind of screens and the right kind of... All the things that we do with the externals that everybody thinks is what makes a church a church, none of those things are real. What's going to save people is the faithful proclamation of the gospel in the context of the law that condemns us, not that saves us. Right? If you proclaim the law as a thing which saves you, you rob the gospel of its purpose. The law converts. It causes us to recognize our need and to cry out to God for mercy. And so we proclaim the law. We teach what God has said so that we might see the greatness of our need. It also tells us who God is. How did God begin his instruction of the Ten Commandments? Do you remember? Exodus chapter 20 verse 2 says this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. So God started his summary of the law with this statement. Hey guys, 
Here's my authority for telling you what I want. It's who I am. I am the Lord your God. And you have known me a little bit because I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of the land of bondage. But that's not why I want you to listen. I want you to listen because I am God. And so the law is given in the context of God's self-declaration. It's given in the context of God saying, this is who I am, this is what I love, this is what I hate. It's given in the context of God revealing himself. So do you think the law still holds that power in our lives? Uh Uh-huh. Because God doesn't change. God's self-declaration remains exactly what it has always been. And through that, we find the particulars of what his will is for us. Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. In our, cor- in our corporate reading, we've started Psalm 119. And as we go through all of the, the passages of Psalm 119 over the course of the next several months, we're going to find that the law of God is present in every single verse in that psalm except two. 176 verses in Psalm 119, and all but two of them directly mention the law of God. It extols His law. It praises His law. It gives thanks to God for what He's done. Because through the law, we learn to love God. We learn to love His ways. We learn to understand what He wants from us. We learn His will. We learn what our duty is to both God and man. I've already told you this. But Jesus said to them, the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, there's the summary statement of the Ten Commandments. And so you can think about the Ten Commandments in the particulars of what you owe to God and what you owe to man. This is God's will. This is what he calls us to do so that we're not reprehensible sluggards. He wants us to live in such a way that we are respectful and responsible and caring of the people and the things that he has put into our lives. Because that's how he is. And we want to live in a way that is pleasing to God because we love him. We also learn from the law what sin is. 1 John 3, 4 says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Or Romans 3, 20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law teaches us not only what we ought to do, but it also teaches us what we ought not to do. Amen? We need those boundaries. We need to know which end is which. It also teaches us how sinful our lives actually are. We read earlier from Romans 7, verse 19 is kind of the cry of Paul's heart. The good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. How many of us can relate to that? Uh Uh-huh. All the time. It tells us how much God loves our obedience and hates our disobedience. Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, he says, You shall not bow down to them, that's the idols, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. 
And it goes further than that, because God not only hates the sin, he also hates the sinner. Now, I know that's not politically correct in the church to say. We want to tell people all the time, oh, God only hates your sin, he doesn't hate the sinner. But that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says God hates those who hate him. Now, sometimes his mercy reaches out because none of us love him first. We love him because he first loved us, the scripture says. But his general nature and his general feeling towards those who hate him and those who disobey him and those who walk in their sin willingly and joyfully is he hates them. He hates their deeds. He hates their behavior. He hates their whole lives. And unless he changes them, they will be damned. There's nobody who's going to be good enough. And there's nobody who who is just, oh, it's not their fault. Right? Yeah, they're deceived. And we all would be too if it weren't for the mercy of God. But understand this. When we were deceived, we were the ones deceiving us. We wanted our own way. We wanted our own sin. We wanted our own things. We wanted our own pleasure. Yeah, the devil was deceiving us. Evil was deceiving us. All the dark forces of the universe were deceiving us. But we were the major player in that deception. Because it's what we want. And God hates that. The scripture teaches us that God loves because he chooses to love. Not because we deserve it. Man's inability to keep the law and the law's inability to make us keep it is a central theme. Romans 8.3 says, What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on the account of sin, he condemned sin in that flesh. Teaches us that we needed something else besides the law. Romans 3, verses 20 and 21 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the, the, the law has its place. It, it teaches us. It gives us instruction. It also gives us direction. It convinces men of their sin. It humbles us for their sin. It makes us hate our sin. It works to help us restrain ourselves from our sin after we've been converted, of course. It works to drive men to Christ. It works to aim us as closely conformity to what God says as it is possible to do. And it works to make us more afraid of disobedience and the consequence of it. So that we do not desire that which is evil. And it makes us, if we reject Christ, all the more inexcusable. It makes believers even more thankful for Christ's active and passive obedience. Because by his life and by his death, he has freed us from our sin. Look, I want to sum all this up by saying this. We needed a new law. We needed the law of the gospel. Because the old law couldn't save. Never did. Never could. Never was supposed to. And we need to recognize that truth because when we come to a new priest, that new priest has an entirely new way of doing things. He has an entirely new way of communicating us to God. The law does not save, but it does lead us to Christ who does save. Acts 13.39 says, By him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Isn't that cool? Everything that the law of Moses could not justify you from, could not justify you for, could not justify you by, 
was justified in Christ and in Christ alone. Beloved, there's no need for the law to be a hanger-on in the church. There's no need for us to try and mix and match the Old Testament dietary restrictions or clothing restrictions or celebratory commands. Look, if you want to go and and enjoy a feast, go enjoy a feast. (laughs) But don't expect it to have salvific content for you. It is not God's lasting plan. It was set aside. The plan has always been Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace, and I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to love and to honor you above all things. And I pray, God, that you would help us to understand that in the midst of this life, there are many who will offer a counterfeit gospel that is working out our salvation by our own works. They'll use many of the right words and many of the right buzz phrases, God, but there is an absence of dependence upon Christ. Lord, armor us against that. Let us recognize the newness of the law that is ours in the gospel, and let us recognize that Christ has fulfilled the old law and borne our guilt and satisfied your wrath. And let us understand that our obedience to your nature and ways and your law is because we love you and not because we hope that it helps. God, teach us to love and honor Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.